Articles of Confederation. It was this document that the, the, the founders of America tried to use as loosely uniting the 13 states. I have a copy of, of the front page of the Articles of Confederation. So the Articles of Confederation and perpetual union between the states of, and then there's, there's 13 states that are listed. And, and um, the Articles of Confederation were the new way that this new society under, under autonomous democracy was going to run. And uh, in, in, in 1777, it's passed. In 1778, it starts to make its way around to the colonies. But um, the printing person who made the copies made some errors, and they had to retract them all. And then um, the states were so strong in the terms of the Articles of Confederation, and the government was completely weak, that states didn't really have a rush to sign this. And so it took over four years for all 13 states to simply sign this document. It was so bad that after the six years that this document was what was founding America, the, 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 the framers got together, the Continental Congress got back together, and in 1787, they proposed a new document. They said, let's scrap all this, let's start over. And that gave birth in 1787 to what we now call the Constitution of the United States of America. Today, if you become an American citizen, you take a constitutional uh, questionnaire exam. You don't learn at all about the Articles of Confederation. They are old history to be left in the past, maybe a storyteller or two about it, but completely disregarded and not useful for our lives. If you're in trouble with the law, you need a lawyer that knows the Constitution of the United States, not the Articles of Confederation. They have gone the way down the path to irrelevancy. And that's um, an interesting thought for us as we come to this topic of sola scriptura. Scripture alone, one of the reformational principles that what we need in our life is God's word. Because how many people in our country today treat the Bible the same way we treat the Articles of Confederation? It's an old document. It's, it, it had its day in the sun, but now we've progressed onto better forms, better systems, better things. Surely this book has no authority in our lives. It has no power to change. It has, it has no capability to do anything. It, is, it has gone the way of the Articles of Confederation down the path towards irrelevancy. Unfortunately, that's the attitude of some people today. And yet, because of the Reformation, Protestants... Those who protest, who are evangelical, hold firmly to the fact that the scriptures are God's word. I thought you would amen that. Aren't you Protestants? Scripture is God's word. That it has a place in our lives. That it is useful. That it is inspired from the heart and the mind of God. That it was uh, uh, brought forth by the spirit. It is trustworthy and truthful. It is inerrant and infallible in all that it prescribes and it is sufficient for our daily lives. This is what we believe about scripture. And you may be here today and, and, and honestly one of the things that's bothered you about Christianity in particular is our view of this book. You don't have a category for, for somewhere saying that, that a book could be divine, that a book could be the words of God. And maybe for you, you would criticize Christians for being naive, and yet here you are today, and you cannot, you cannot diminish the influence of the Bible over the course of history. We would all agree that because of this book, when the Reformers got the Bible into the hands of common people, into the language of common man, 
the Bible all of a sudden started to break society's social structures and powers into a way where the gospel started to breathe life again here on earth. From the Reformation and according to biblical principles, universities sprang up and hospitals sprang up and missionary movements began and the the word of God and and, and all the humanitarian relief that's happened in the world has started in some sense because of the call back to the Reformation period. You can't deny the fact that this word, this Bible has had tremendous influence in our world. And so we believe that the Bible is God's word. And is anyone really surprised that When God set forth to write a book, it became a universal bestseller of all time. I mean, of course it did. There's not a book in in the marketplace today that comes close to having distributed the same amount of Bibles as as there are in the world. Five billion is the estimate. And um, estimates are that every household in America has four copies of the Bible. It was rare in the Reformation time for a single city to have one. We are so engrossed with opportunity to read the scriptures. Uh, the YouVersion Bible app came out in 2000, um, and I think uh, late 2000s. And uh, in 2016, after they'd been around for a while, they celebrated over 250 million downloads around the globe at a pace so astonishing that one app was being downloaded every single 1.3 seconds. It's easy to say this. We have the Bible. The question for us is simply this. Does the Bible have us? Does the Bible have a place in our lives? Does the sola scriptura mean anything to you and to me? This is not a new question. This is a question that was uh, uh, wrestled with back in the days of the Reformation. It was a defining question of the early church. How do we rightly relate to God's word? How do we understand it? For our time together today, I want to just bring forth four areas that the Bible speaks to in our lives, four spaces that God's word must relate to our lives and us with it for it to have its full effect in our lives. And so um, with that as our framework for this morning, I want to just jump right in. We're going to be touching on the different points of what scripture says about itself. The first space that we relate to scripture with in our lives, the first place that it has absolute impact in our lives is this, it's, it's God's word over me. God's word stands over us as our final authority. Those are hard words to hear because um, we live in a culture that so easily says, no, man, you are the authority. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Don't let anyone make up your mind for you. Don't let anybody try and tell you that there's right or wrong. You know inherently what's right and wrong. No, 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 you don't need some objective standard. You are the authority. And yet, Because of what the Bible says about itself, because of the Reformation, we understand Scripture is our final authority. Now, that doesn't mean that Scripture is the only authority. God's Word is very clear that God has set up in His wisdom an authoritative structure to govern the world, that all things are in subjection to Him, but He allows His reign and rule to go out in certain ways. But at the end of the day, God's Word over us must be our final authority. Everybody say the word final It's the last word. It's the highest word. 2 Timothy 3.16 points this out. This is a verse we spent time on last week. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and watch as this is part two of that same message. But here's what Paul says. Paul says, all scriptures breathed out by God 
It's a made-up word in the Greek. Paul didn't really have a word, so he made it up. And um, it, it means it was exhale, exhaled out of God's spirit. He had to create a word to say it's breathed out by God. It's, it's emanating from him. That's why it's authoritative. It comes directly to us from God. And here's the use that it has. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And here's the end of the scripture in our lives. That the man or woman of God might be completed, equipped for every good work. Scriptures are authority because it comes from God out of his heart, out of his mind, and by his spirit. And it's given to us, all of us. I'm reminded that it was even given to Jesus. Jesus, while he was on earth, he placed scripture as the authority in his life as well. Uh, really, really quickly. Luke chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but you, you might remember that story. Jesus is born and then we have this sort of ambiguous period of his life where he's growing up. And we have one story really of this time when Jesus was growing in stature, as the Bible calls it. And it was after a festival. Uh, the whole town was going back to where they lived, down from Jerusalem. And... Um, there was this herd just migrating. It was kind of like the hallways here at HP afterwards. Everybody's kids were just running around and like it was communal and everybody's like, it's okay, we're all together. We know everybody. And somehow some of you treat your kids that way and that's okay. And um, there's this moment in this journey where Mary looks at Joseph and says, I haven't seen Jesus in a long time. Where is he? And Joseph goes, um, I was watching the other kids. What were you doing? And uh, you can imagine the panic in Mary's heart as a mom not knowing where her son is. And the two of them ferociously retrace their steps and they get all the way back to the temple. And Jesus is in the temple as a 12-year-old boy preaching the scriptures. Such high authority. And he says to his parents, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? To make God's word our absolute authority in our lives is such a big deal. Uh, two chapters later in the same gospel, the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in response to the temptations by the devil, which by the way were not things like, hey, have an Oreo and cheat on your diet. They were like real temptations. Like, um, hey, you could be king of the universe if you wanted to. Everyone will bow down to you and you would escape the suffering of the cross if you just say, I'm awesome. Easy things. And in the midst of those temptations, Jesus replies with authoritative words, not written by Confucius, not written by Time Magazine, not written by, um, there's that guy from SNL, Jack Handy, but from Deuteronomy, from the Psalms, from Scripture. And he says, thus says the Lord. In the face of the enemy twisting God's word upon him, he quotes authoritative Scripture back to him. A little bit later in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to Galilee and he goes again to a synagogue and he's given a scroll and he reads it. And Isaiah 61 is what comes in, next in their reading. And he reads Isaiah 61 and he goes on to teach about it. And I could just do this the rest of the morning. I could just walk you through the gospel of Luke and show you how seriously Jesus took the scriptures as his authority. Even so much so that in John chapter 5, Jesus chastises the Pharisees saying, you search the scriptures believing that in them is eternal life and you fail to recognize that it points to me. Authoritative. Isaiah, in the Old Testament, highlights this need that we have for God's word to be authoritative in our lives. Look at what he says, Isaiah 66, verses one and two. 
God says through the prophet Isaiah, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's interesting, of all the things we try and do for God, all the houses we try and build for him, all the pieces of our life that we try and submit to him, the one thing he requests is a little bit of humility. That we as his creation might be willing to say, God, we stand under your authority. That your word is what causes us to tremble. That we look not to the wisdom of man, but to the wisdom of you, O God, because you created it all. So how do we relate to the scripture? Well, the first is this. You've got to put it in its right place. It's a lot higher than maybe our culture wants to put it. It is our final authority. The question is this. How, how do we appropriately tremble at God's word then? And I think that's the second space that scripture gives us to relate to it in. Scripture is over us as our authority, but then check this out. And then the second thing is this, is that uh, scripture is under us. Scripture is under us. It's our foundation. It's our foundation. Foundations in life are so important. Foundations are, are what allows us to build our lives, build our homes, build our buildings, build our careers, build our whatever upon a foundation. And Jesus has a parable in Matthew chapter 7. I'd like you to open to it if you have it. Matthew chapter 7. And his teaching has an incredibly real life quality to us today, especially what's happened in the past couple of weeks. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, everyone then that hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I remember I was a little kid growing up in church. We had this little song we used to sing about this lightheartedly. The rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand went Thank you. Splat. Lightheartedly, we would just joke about this. And Jesus is very clearly talking about a matter of life and death. That's an incongruence in kids' ministry, but I, I digress. Here, kids, sing this cheerful song about, never mind. I remember building sandcastles as a little kid. You remember when you used to go to the edge of the Lake Michigan or to the ocean, and you'd build as big of a sandcastle as you could, and you miscalculated how high the tide was going to come? And uh, your great creation, all of a sudden the waves come upon it, and it, what does it do? It drags the sand back into the sea, and it just reduces everything to a pile of rubble. No foundation to it all. I remember being a little kid thinking, don't build your sandcastle in the sand. Words from Jesus, a Jewish carpenter to live by. You should take him at his word. What is Jesus describing here? What is he describing when the rain comes and the waters rise, and the wind beats against the house. What is that? Can I help you? It's called a hurricane. Have we had any of those lately? Have we had enough of those lately? 
And that we as a church who have helped with giving thousands of dollars to hurricane relief, we, we've watched, even in our own country, as, as people's lives crumble around them. Your foundation when you build a home matters. I don't know if you just purchased a, a house recently and had a home inspection. One of the things they do is they, they kick the tires, so to speak, and they check out the foundation. They see if there's any cracks in it. They see if there's any place that needs to be repaired. Some of you guys build houses, and you know one of the most important things that you can do, one of the most laborious things that you can do is, is, is to set the footings for the foundation and to pour the foundation. And typically speaking, once the foundation is poured and set, ultimately that building can go up pretty quickly. Sometimes you'll break ground and it'll take a long time to get that foundation set. But once it's set, you can fly through that thing. And some of you have built really elaborate houses and you're like, that's not entirely true. But yeah, the idea is right. And some of you know that when you pour a foundation, what the mixture of the concrete is, is incredibly important for the load that it's going to carry later on in life. And some of us, we just go in our front door and we trust the foundation of our house to hold it up. That's the extent of what we know about foundations. But when the winds come, and the storms blow, don't you want your house to protect you? I found an amazing picture online the other day of, of, of this exact thing. You can see this, uh, this picture. This is an entire community down in, in Galveston. A couple of years ago, there was a hurricane. And um, pretty awful, right? I mean, that is, that is disastrous. I believe that was all farmland and businesses and stores. But who wants to be this guy? Like, who wants to be that guy whose house looks like it was just built? The obvious question is, is this. How did they build their house so fast after a hurricane? And the answer is, they built it years before the storm ever showed up. And this couple was uh, interviewed on, on um, many news outlets to ask the obvious question, how did your house survive the storm? And the answer was, we paid attention to the things that were probably going to hurt us in the future. And so we made decisions that cost us a little bit more money, cost us a little bit more time, made us be a little bit more patient, but we built our house so that it could withstand a, a Category 5 hurricane. And so when a Category 4 came ripping through, everyone's, everyone's lives was turned upside down, but, but, but we still live here. And um, I kind of wonder, like, does he feel like a jerk being the only house in the neighborhood? But you get the picture. Foundations require attention. You do not stumble your way to a good foundation. The foolish person stumbles their way and builds their house on sinking sand. But, but, but if you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord, when God's word is your authority, it also simultaneously becomes your foundation. Firm foundation upon which your life can be built so it can withstand the storms of life. And isn't it really frustrating that when Jesus said, um, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like the man who built his house upon a rock. And we wanted to say, and never again did the storms blow. They all went to the guy who didn't build his house on the rock. But no, the promise is that when the storms blow, the house will stand. And determining how you're going to deal with a crisis always needs to happen before you hit the crisis. And when God's word is your authority and the basis for your life, you have a playbook for the midst of trials. One story that I heard this, actually I read it yesterday, 
It was in the Washington Post. It was gut-wrenching in, in its sorrow. A man up in Wyoming, Michigan, which is a small suburb outside of, not that small, a suburb outside of Grand Rapids, recently buried his wife. Months ago, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. At the same time she was diagnosed with a brain tumor, she was found to be eight weeks pregnant. You can imagine the devastation of the situation. First for the husband to find out that his wife has a terminal situation. Doctors gave her 18 months to live if she had any type of chemotherapy or radiation or surgery. The man told the Washington Post, we live our lives based upon what God's word tells us, so going through any sort of radiation that would harm the baby was not an option for us. And my wife decided that she would deliver this baby and carry this baby to her end. And not long ago, the baby was born. One pound, seven ounces. She called her name Life. And then she died. Baby life struggled in the NICU. She was supposed to be there for 73 days, and she was only there for six before this dad watched his daughter die. I told you it was, it was sorrowful. And what struck me about this man's story is not the depth of pain that he went through. And so, so many of us would, would, would struggle, even the decision-making process. Why would you make that decision? And here's what he said. You can look this up on the Washington Post. It was in, in there yesterday. He said, we've vowed to live our lives with God's word at the center. And we have faith in the promises of what God has said he would do. And though this is really hard, I have hope for the future that I will one day still see my wife because of her faith in Jesus. And so while this is a struggle and a trial, and I don't know why God decided to take my wife and my kid, I praise him nonetheless because I know his word will not lead me astray. And that's just one example of what it looks like when through fiery trials we walk. When darkness seems to hide God's face. If we're people who are under the authority of Scripture and building our lives upon the authority of Scripture, we will be people who can go through the trials and say with confidence, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But it's Christ and Christ alone. And friends, you are in a life that will have more trials come your way. And so the call for us in Sola Scripture is for us to make preparations for those moments when it comes for those moments when we know the wind is going to blow on our house of our life proverbially and, and going to rack us and cause us fear. And if we're people who know God's word and are surrendered to God's word, we will live in the midst of it, praising God in the storm. Scripture over me is my authority. Scripture under me is my firm foundation. And then get the scripture in me. Scripture in me. You gotta have scripture over you. You gotta have scripture beneath you. But then, um, if I could eat this book, I would. I, I like the leather, so I, I won't. But you get the idea that you would devour God's word. It's your fuel for your life. Um, back in, in the days of, 
of the Reformation. They were living in a time of, 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 a, of a desert of biblical truth. In biblical times, when the word of God no longer came to the people, it was described as a famine, as if there wasn't enough food for people's souls. They would be starved of spiritual intake. And this is what led the prophet Jeremiah to write upon uh, his pages and his prophecy, hearing from the Lord. He says this. Check this out. Uh, this is Jeremiah 15. He says, God, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Why do too many Christians treat God's word like it's kale and not the milkshake that it is? As if like it's the garnish on the dish that we're not sure if we're supposed to eat. People say it's good for us, but we're not really entirely sure. When in reality, God's word is called milk in the scriptures. Look at what Peter says 500 years later after Jeremiah, 1 Peter 2, 2. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, the word of God, that by it you may grow up into salvation. When we put God's word into us, it's, it's the same effect that, that milk had on you as a developing human, that, that it, 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 put, it put muscle and meat on your bones and most of your bones, not mine yet. I'm still waiting for that to happen. But, but it grew you up in, in your physi physiological being. And, and God's word is the spirit that, that builds us up and grows us up into Christ-likeness. And so for us, the challenge is, uh, are we getting our intake of God's word? I would say in Porter County and in Lake County, typically speaking, the people I run into would, would say, yeah, I hear God's word all the time. I listen to this guy on this podcast, I watch this guy on this TV show, and I go to this church where this person preaches. But part of what the Reformation did was, was recognize that the authority structure didn't belong to the church, it belonged to, in God's word. And, and because of that, uh, no authority exists in a, in a person or an institution that is outside of God's plan. Authority exists in God's word alone. And as a pastor, because of that, one of the ways, actually probably the only way that I win in life, the only way that I achieve the goal to which God has called me is if after encouraging you with the word and after showing you the richness of Christ and God and his glory, that you would go out of here, that you would go home, that you would take this book and you would open it as your authority and as your foundation and as your fuel to feed your soul. But Dan, I don't have a degree. There's a lot of weird words. I don't understand it. Dan, I tried that. I read Genesis and Exodus, and then I got to Leviticus, and it was hard. Dan, I don't get everything in there. Don't you need to know Hebrew to understand it correctly anyway? Um, and uh, just because God's word was put into the common language doesn't mean that it's God's word that is easy to understand. I have a master's degree in biblical studies, and Y'all, there are so many verses in the Bible that I have no idea what they mean. But you know what? That doesn't stop us from studying God's word. And um, if you're someone here who needs help along the way, let me recommend to you two websites. Two websites, it's just like, if you're like me, you need some help in this area. Daily reading is something you want to get into. You know you need to feed your soul, but, but you can barely keep your life together in other areas. This keeps being the thing that shames you time and time again. Your conscience is guilty because you missed a, a day. And like, let me just release you as a pastor from that. You are forgiven. And um, let me give you two websites. Uh, the first is what I use. I, I use this thing called hereadstruth.com. You may have heard of it. Hereadstruth.com. 
It's a website for men that has the sole purpose of getting guys to read God's word. And along with this website, are there daily articles that help you apply and understand what you've just read in God's word. But it's set up in such a way where you shouldn't and you can't just skip the Bible part and go right to the article part. It's designed for us to take in God's word directly. Not secondhand, not thirdhand, but directly. And how many people know this? Every time you open up God's word, God speaks to you. Every single time. God speaks sometimes in other ways, through a friend or through wise counsel, but if you want to get a word from God, here it is. It's, it's waiting for you. He wants you to know it. So I would encourage us guys, be men of the word. And ladies, you're like, he reads truth. That's nice. Where's ours? And it's called shereadstruth.com. So there you go. And um, you're all savvy enough to know the app and the website and all that. You figure it out later. Some of you are doing it right now, which I love. I totally approve that. If you're texting each other, stop it. But you can go online right there. God's word. It's got to be our diet. We need what Paul says. We need Bible intake on a Colossians 3.16 type of way. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This idea of dwelling is to set up shop, to take residence, to be permanent in its place in your life. And when it has residence in you, when the word of God is in you, then you can teach, admonish one another in all wisdom. Then when, when God's word lives in you, you can come on a Sunday and sing songs that are, that are steeped in biblical language and, and know that you're singing God's words back to him and to each other with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God's word in you proves thankfulness to him. So we let it dwell in us so that we can teach, encourage, sing, and be thankful. And so when God's word is above us and it's below us and it's in us, it can then be lived out through you. That's the fourth thing, the last thing. I want to close on this thought. How do we rightly relate to scripture? How is scripture our authority and our foundation and our fuel? Well, when it's all those things, it becomes our life. Scripture becomes our life that is lived through us. Um, how many parents or, or kids in the room know this? Um, or have had this situation. I've, I've got a daughter named Elin, and this is kind of a, a window into our family around like 7.45, 8 o'clock at night. She'll be watching TV. I'll look over at her. I'll say, okay, Elin, time to turn the TV off and go upstairs. And without fail, she goes, okay, Daddy. But then she doesn't move. And some of your parents are like glaring at your kids right now. That's amazing. So I'll say it again. I'll say, um, Okay, Ewan, time to turn the TV off and go upstairs. Okay, Daddy. And if my daughter says, okay, Daddy, and then she quickly obeys, I know she's putting my words ahead of her own desires. But if I ask her and I say, honey, are my words at all important to you? And she says, yes, Daddy, they're the most important words in my whole entire life. And then she doesn't move. I go, really? And I wonder how often God looks down at us, hears our apparent commitments to his word, sees our Bibles around the house and in our hands, but not in our hearts, sees us nodding our heads at Sola Scriptura messages, and yet here we are spiritually sitting on the couch, not moving. How do you know if God's word is your authority and your foundation and your fuel? Because you, 
you live it. You do it. You do it two ways. Obedience is the first way. Obedience to God's word. Look at James 1.22. Our women's ministry on Thursday mornings is walking through the, the book of James. And I, if they haven't gotten there already soon, they'll get to this verse. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James goes on to describe this person as, as if it's someone who looks in a mirror but then walks away without making any necessary changes. Like, what difference is it actually going to make in my life? So if my daughter again says, okay, daddy, but doesn't move, it, it, it's telling me that she doesn't actually treasure or value my input in her life as a dad. But if she does obey and quickly the first time gets up and walks out, in my human heart, you know what I do? I go like this. I go, Elon, actually sit down. Let me go get you some candy and some ice cream. Let's celebrate the fact that you quickly obeyed me. And let's stay up till 10. Now, God isn't so transactional in his life and the way he deals with us. But, but in my heart, when I see my children obey me, there's this flourishing of blessing I want to put on their lives. And, and likewise, obedience to God's moral and spiritual will in his word is really the bottom line. And sure, we're a church that preaches grace. We're actually going to talk about grace alone coming up. And we all fall short in many respects, and we all have disobeyed God's word at some point, but that doesn't mitigate the need for a life of obedience to God's word. See, sola scriptura, when we understand it properly, it leads to action in our lives based upon what we see in God's word. So we're obedient to his word. And the second way that we live out God's word is, is through the guidance that God's word gives us. Not all decisions in life are simple yes, no, obedience, go here, do this, say this, live like this type of thing. Many of the ways that we live out our lives are questions of discernment and wisdom and need for guidance. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if, like, God told you as a college kid exactly the person you should ask to marry you? And exactly the type of company you should look for and the name of that company and the position you should ask to, to be hired into and, and even the salary that you should ask for. Some of us wish like we could know how many kids we should have and where we should live and is it okay to do this or that. And how amazing like if there's just like a playbook for me and then for all of you as well that just laid out the path for our life, exactly what God wants from you. And yet, all of us know that's not how life works. God often gives us wisdom to choose what is best. I once had a friend in college. She was a girl who um, was very pretty and a, a guy, she get hit on all the time. And a guy came up to her once in the lunchroom and told her, said, you know, I had a dream where God told me that we're going to get married, which is an awful pickup line, guys. And I loved her response. She said, well, when God tells me that too, we'll do that. So often, we're, we're mystically searching for this, like, God told me I'm supposed to go to this place. God told me I'm supposed to do this thing. God told me I'm, and um, sometimes, but more often than not, that voice in your head might not be the Spirit, and we are to test the guidance of God's Spirit through what the Spirit inspired in His Word. We are to test all things according to God's Scripture and to receive wisdom in our lives from God's word, to get direction for where I should go and how I should do it, not, not absolutes in the terms of 
you know, God never told me, Dan, marry Kristen. I just was attracted to her, and I liked her, and she had the same values and loved Jesus. And so I said, let's get married, baby. And more often than not, that's how you did it too. Because God's word leads us to see the type of people we're supposed to be, to give guidance by his word. I want to close with just an example of how I've seen this lived out in our lives in a, in a, in a poor way. This is a totally hypothetical situation, totally fictional. I don't have anybody's name in mind here. But when we are people who live our lives according to God's word of sola scriptura, we have God's word as our authority, God's word as our foundation, God's word in us, and God's word living through us. Um, here's how I think maybe it could have an impact in our lives. One situation that I've seen time and time again is a young couple will get married, and all of a sudden they, they, they're making so much money that they're like, let's buy a new car. Or a young adult gets a job. And they're making money, and they still live at their parents' house. They're not paying rent. It's the best situation in life, isn't it? And uh, you have all this disposable cash. So you take yourself down to the used car lot or the new car lot even, and you fall in love with this car. I'm sorry. Guys, you fall in love with this truck, and it's an awesome truck. This thing's sweet. But the problem is it costs a little bit more money than you have. And you're walking through it and you're wrestling with it and you're like, man, this thing is awesome. You know how much I could do with this. It would look great next to the other car and I could drive by at stoplights. People think I got my act together. Like my, my dad will think I'm successful. Like this would be awesome. And uh, out in the parking lot walks a salesman. He says, what are you looking at? Well, I like this truck. Oh, that's great. Well, how much can you spend? Well, not that much. Well, that's okay. We have financing options for you. We can get you out of the lot with this truck for very, very little money. And so, person whose life is not built upon the foundations of God, who's going to be building upon the, the sand, is going to just, by conventional wisdom, say, well, everybody I know has a, has a car loan. Must be okay. And I can certainly afford that every single month. And so, you find your way into the finance department office. And you sit down with a guy who sits at a desk, has never sold a car in his life, just knows numbers. And he briefly explains to you the terms of the contract you're about to sign. And... Uh, tells you, now here's how this works. We're going to give you the car. You're going to drive the car off. It's your car. It's an amazing car. You're going to love this car forever. This car is going to make you a better person. And uh, you're just going to give us a, a couple hundred dollars, a couple, you know, hundred dollars a month, two, three. Okay, if it's the truck, like nine, ten, hundred dollars a month. And um, you're going to love it. I can hear some of you already saying, like, Dan, is it sinful for me to have a car payment? And that's not the point. And I don't need you to come up here afterwards confessing to me you have a car payment. I actually don't care. Unless you drive a Maserati, I'm not interested in your car or your car payment, okay? 69 Chevelle too. I'll take that too. But I, I want to propose to us a different way that if we have God's word as our authority, God's word as our foundation, God's word in us and God's word through us, how we might build our lives upon different principles than what the world has sort of tricked us into spending all of our life in. This is just a hypothetical situation. I think that if we were somebody who built our life upon God's word, we would hear these sayings. We would hear these voices in our minds saying, well, I deserve it. I've worked hard for it. Everybody I know has a car payment. And, and, and we would, first of all, recognize that the Bible says God's given me all that I need for life and godliness and that all that I have comes from him directly and that my money is his. And first and foremost, I'm supposed to be a steward of what he's given me. 
And someone who has that foundation in their life approaches buying a car totally differently. Their values are different because God has told us in his word that we have to have his word as a priority, his mission as a priority. Is it wrong, Dan, to buy a really expensive car? No, not if you can afford it. Like if God, by his grace, has given you a a wealthy job and great success and you can afford to pay cash for a Bugatti, God bless you. Most of us can't. So, honestly, that changes the way we shop for a new car. If you're not in that position and your heart falls in love with a car you think you want, it's a car that you can't afford, and the salesman says to you, it's okay, we have a financing department. The heart that is under Scripture and founded on the troops of Scripture is going to know this, that the borrower in the Bible is always slave to the lender. Like, that's in God's Word. How about that for a moment? Like, what, what, do, we, what do we think about that? What do we believe about that? So many of us have racked up credit cards and racked up debt and have become slaves to the person that we've bought all of our things from. So many people here in our church and definitely in America know what it's like to work 80 hours a week and have nothing to show for it. And yet God in his wisdom says the slave is, uh, the, the borrower is slave to the lender. And the moment that The person thinks to themselves, but I deserve it. Look at how great my life is going to be, how much people will think of me. I can finally prove to my dad is going to think and realize that with God's word as its foundation, we'll remember this. My most important identity is that of a child of God purchased by the expensive and priceless blood of Jesus. And no car that I drive can make me more valuable to him. We're suckers for marketing. And if ever there was a pill or a bullet that would cut through the noise of all that we hear, the thousands of messages that we hear on a daily basis, it's this. God's word is our guide. God's word is our authority. God's word is our foundation. And God's word is our fuel. May that be true of us as a church. Let's pray.